We're now going to move on to our reading. Nick's preaching this morning on Joshua chapter 6, but he's got me to read this morning, Genesis 18, The Three Visitors. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. While he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me give you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way, now that you've come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seers of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set, the, set these things before them. While they ate, he, sat, he, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. Abraham pleads for Sodom. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the ways of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Adam, for, say for Abraham, what he's promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep the righteous away with the wicked? What if there are fifty righteous men in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare it, the place for the sake of fifty righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, If I find fifty righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham, Abraham spoke again. Now being so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of righteous men is is five less than fifty? 
Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again he spoke to him, What if there are only 40 are found there? The Lord said, For the sake of 40 I will not do it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only 30 can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Abraham said, Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only 20 can be found there? The Lord said, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only 10 can be found there? The Lord answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking speaking with Abraham, he left Abraham and returned home. Well, we're going to look, uh, we're carrying on our series in Joshua. If I can, uh... there we go. We've been looking at the theme about of spiritual warfare. It's a battle on two fronts. Internally, within us, it's a battle against sin. A key part of that battle is a defensive warfare against compromise. So we're attacked as the Satan-inspired world appeals to our base instincts. We we talked about that last time. And there's an external battle um, for the growth of God's kingdom. That's an offensive warfare uh, with the gospel. And it's fought essentially by storytelling, by telling the story of Christ on the cross, backed with prayer, backed with unity, um, backed with holy living. And the battle that the people of Israel face is the same, except for one key feature. In, for these specific people, these Canaanites, whom God has given ages and ages to repent, Israel are called to carry out um, God's judgment straight away. And thankfully, we are not. So we don't need to carry our swords with us uh, as we go out with the gospel, because God will deal with that judgment later on. So there are deliberate parallels. The word highlighted in red is for those of you who are going to grab the word search and the notes. They're still there if you, if you want to grab one there. So there are deliberate parallels, and I'm going to read you some bits of uh, uh, Joshua 6. I'm going to pick them up as we go along, uh, and then we'll, uh, we'll pick out then what are these parallels, what are the lessons we can learn in our spiritual warfare um, from the book of Joshua. And the first thing is that any appearance of strength is irrelevant. So let's pick up Joshua 6, and I'm going to read you verses 1 and 2. And it starts like this. It says, Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. And then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. You need to see that. So either pick it up on page 220, uh, or maybe next time around. Um, Ian, can you pick that up next time around? The gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out, no one came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. So the appearance of strength is absolutely irrelevant. The leaders of Jericho have shut the gates. Okay? It was possible to make peace with Israel and with Israel's God. Rahab has done it. Okay? They do know what the Lord is capable of. Uh, they've seen, they've uh, heard about the Red Sea. Um, they've heard about the Jordan. But their considered response is to bar the gates. 
Okay, that's, I guess, a kind of formal declaration, isn't it, uh, on the king, that they are rejecting Israel, they are rejecting the Lord, they are rejecting the possibility of peace that's been laid out before them. And in the Lord's mind, despite the fact that the gates are shut, the battle is already won. His purposes are already achieved. He says in those verses, I have delivered Jericho into your hands. So I wonder just first off then, this appearance of strength, the fact that it's shut, it looks like the gates are barred, it looks like uh, there, is, there is strength. Does that mean anything to the Lord? Not a jot. So when you go out there and in your places of work or with your mates down the pub uh, and they seem, uh, they seem resistant to the gospel and you make a kind of mental measure, it, it, is that of any consequence? It is of none. In fact, isn't it also a little bit presumptuous to go out there and say they're not going to want to know about Christ? Is that not actually a little bit presumptuous on the Lord's purposes? Are you not kind of starting to define the Lord's purposes for him? The Lord knows who's going to respond. Sorry, stick back there. Even if, like here, it's just a minority, it's just Rahab and her family, it's one family out of however many. So as you go out there, whatever people's resistance, what their background looked like, is irrelevant. So don't measure it, and don't get discouraged by it. Paul, uh, God said, the Lord said to Paul when he was in Corinth, he'd had some opposition from the, from the Jewish people, and he'd kind of kicked the dust off his heels, and, and the, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, he said, don't be afraid, keep on speaking, don't be silent, for I am with you, no one is going to attack you and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul was in Corinth, and, uh, and he carried on, because the Lord knew that there were people who was going to, respond, going to respond. So Paul didn't go out there then and measure who was going to be resistant and who was not. Just knew that he'd taken it to the Jews and they'd turn away. So that's the first thing. When you're out there in this battle, this witnessing battle, don't measure people's uh, resistance. It's, it's, it is of no measure. If the Lord wants to rescue people, he will rescue people because he has the power to rescue people. So, then stick to the Lord's foolish strategy. Okay, I'm going to pick up at verse 3. And this is the strategy that, uh, that Joshua is given. He's given it by the commander of the Lord's armies. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horn in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. And when you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout, and then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up. Everyone will go straight in. So Joshua, the son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march round the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. So if the first thing is don't bother measuring people's resistance, the second thing is stick to the foolish strategy, however weak it might seem. Jericho is a, is a, a walled city. Okay, the, the, the cities of Canaan are not that big. We would think of it as a town. It's probably not got a, you know, a big castle wall. It's probably just a ring of houses. 
um, with their backs all facing outwards. If you think about Rahab's house, she was able to, uh, to lower the spies down through the, through the wall. So obviously her house was part of the city wall. But even so, this is a bit of a, uh, of a bizarre plan. So the commander of the Lord's armies, who we met last time, has assured them of victory, and then he gives them this strange strategy. You are to get seven priests with seven trumpets on, on seven days, um, walking around, blowing the trumpets, and at the centre of everything is, is the Ark of the Lord. Or, to be more precise, the Lord himself. And the people need to realise, as one writer says, the 12 tribes are not the only army fighting for their cause. The 12 tribes of Israel are not the only army fighting for their cause. So this is a siege that's accomplished without the machines of war, without the action of war. Instead, what happens is is the people walk around in pretty much a kind of ceremonial procession. And one writer says they're to capture Jericho in what is essentially an extended act of worship. It's a proclamation of war without the war. It's not really weird. But in the sovereignty of God, either the gospel penetrates, as it has for Rahab, or destruction penetrates. It says in the passage that the walls fall, fall upon themselves. Either the gospel penetrates or, or judgment penetrates. And actually, it's this combination of God's presence. He is there um, with the ark, represented by the ark. This combination of the presence of God and the proclamation uh, of the presence of God does the work. And that is all that is needed. As you go out there, witness to people, all that is needed is the presence of God and the proclamation uh, of the gospel, the telling of the story uh, of the cross of Christ. That is our foolish strategy. And we should, uh, we should actually delight in it. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, and you know this well, the message of the cross is foolishness. Foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I'll destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So just tell the story of the cross of Christ. And the problem is we look at the city, we look at some resistant friend or relation or colleague, uh, colleague, and then we look at the strategy and we decide it's not going to work. It is going to work. It works every time. Every time. You tell the gospel there will either be salvation or there will be judgment. It works every time, and there are only two possible outcomes. So let's see what Joshua does. So far, he's only given the instructions. But uh, picking up verse 8, when Joshua had spoken to the people, seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forwards, blowing the trumpets, and the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the Ark. All the time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, don't give a war cry, don't raise your voices, don't say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. 
So he had the Ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp, spent the night there. You get the idea. Joshua got up early the next morning, took the priests up with the Ark of the Lord. Seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The army went ahead of them. The rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once, returned to the camp, and they did this for six days. So, actually, the point of that is the point we've just made before. Stick to the Lord's foolish strategy. People of Israel patiently uh, obey. They give seven days. What is, it, what is this blowing? It's, it's, it's a proclamation, isn't it? And in some ways, it's a warning, and in some ways, it's, it, it's worship. But they, they walk around seven days. But seven in the Bible is always a number of kind of completeness or, or, or perfection. So I think this means that there, there is, this is enough. This is a complete proclamation. It's an, it's an adequate warning. And in the midst of it, the, the ark has center stage. Whereas the, before the priests were described as going before the ark of the Lord, I don't know whether you noticed, now they're described as going before the Lord. Before the Lord. So they're walking around with the presence of God and they're declaring, God is here. God is here. The Lord is here. And the battle lasts seven days. If they've just taken the Passover earlier on, then these are the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And actually this feast is a remembrance of what? Yeah, thank you. It's a remembrance, isn't it, of the escape from Egypt. It's a remembrance of salvation uh, through the Red Sea. And so in the midst of remembering one rescue, um, they're going forward. So that's quite important, isn't it? Their going forward victory kind of rests on uh, their remembrance of of the victory that God has already already won. So our our going forward um, in in witnessing, uh, in speaking to people about Christ, it rests doesn't it, on what God has already done. It rests on the cross. It rests, um, it rests on our remembrance of the cross. And if we, if we forget the cross, then we're not going to go forward with any kind of confidence, are we? I wonder at any point, do you think they were tempted? After how many days did people go, it's not going to work? How many days do you think? Do you think there were any who were tempted to say, I'm not, I'm not doing it today? But they got up and they patiently went round, didn't they, uh, for, the, for the whole of the, of the six days. So stick to the strategy. Stick to the foolish strategy of telling people the story of Christ crucified for sin. But then get, things get a bit darker, don't they? And we can't avoid this. So picking up at verse 15. On the seventh day... They got up at daybreak, so they get up a bit earlier. They got more to do. And they marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day they circled the city seven times. Seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies that were sent. But keep away from the devoted things 
so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into the treasury. So when the trumpets sounded, the army shouted, that the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, that the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. When we get to this, the actual account, the battle itself actually lasts barely a verse. The wall falls down under itself, of itself, under the hand of the Lord. The Lord is not worried about that part of it. And even in the account, you can tell that the Lord, who organizes the account to be written, is not really worried about this bit about the Lord falling down. That was never in doubt. All, all that really needed for that was, was faith. So by faith, the walls of Jericho fell, we read in Hebrews, after the army had marched around them um, for seven days. And faith is simply, what is faith? Faith is just an action based on the invisible realities. Faith is in confidence of what we hope for, assurance about what we do not see. So faith is confident that God is really with them even though they can't see him, and it's an action based on the fact that he's spoken. That's what faith is. But the Lord then has two bigger concerns. If he's not really bothered about the, the, the battle and we get one verse for the battle, what is he concerned about? Well, he's concerned again for people's hearts and minds. Two particular concerns. One is Rahab's position. He is concerned that um, Rahab's salvation is carried through. And the other is for his own people's hearts and minds. He, he knows that if they take away any items from this culture, if, if they allow any people to live out of this culture, that his people will be compromised. So the city and everything in it have to be devoted to the Lord by destruction. Let's pick up the story. So Joshua said to the two men who'd spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house, bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men had done the spying, they went in and they brought out Rahab, her father and her mother, her brothers and sisters and all who belonged to her. And they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. But they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men of Joshua. So she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. And at that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. And at the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. So let's just... Look at this idea of devotion to the Lord in a little bit more detail. 
We see a kind of devotion in Rahab, don't we? She's taken a step of faith. By faith, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed. See what's happened through faith. She's not just become a member of Isabel, but she's not killed. She doesn't face the Lord's destruction. That's just basic, isn't it? That's what faith brings you. Trust in Christ on the cross. It, it, it brings you, perhaps most fundamentally, an escape from the Lord's judgment. Initially, she's placed outside the camp. I don't know what that means, except perhaps just a temporary place for her own safety. But long term, her future is as an Israelite. She is one of God's people. That's what faith does. It spares you the judgment that is coming, and it makes you one of God's kingdom, one of God's people. The rest are destroyed. Now, that sits uncomfortably. I think it ought to sit uncomfortably with you. But I want to just pick up some some notes of, of, of reassurance or just some things to think about as, as we think about this action of devoting all these people, young and old, and the animals uh, and the precious bits to the Lord. And that's why I think Abraham's conversation with the Lord regarding Sodom shows that God does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. I think it's a deliberate reassurance on the Lord's part, back in Genesis 18, that the Lord does not make average judgments. does not approach a city and think it's 80% evil, I'm going to wipe it away. And he comes to Sodom and he's, uh, he doesn't think it's 90% evil. And, uh, and that's, I guess, what Abraham's saying. He's saying, Lord, how evil does it have to be before you, before you destroy it? 95%? The Lord says, no. 98%? No. 99% no. No, I, I think we can take away a reassurance from that passage that the Lord knows. The Lord says, I'll go down and I'll see and I will know. Lord knows that there's no righteous person left in Sodom. And so actually, we're reassured as, as, as God comes to, to Jericho that there are no righteous people there. In fact, we know that already, don't we? Because... The, the righteous people are those who have trusted God, who've put faith in the offer of peace with God that's been out there, and that's Rahab and her family. So we know almost by definition the rest of them. They're not righteous, okay? And there's no neutral ground. They're either righteous by faith or they're not righteous, and we know, and we're reassured. You can read for yourself. You can do this in home groups if you like. I've given you the passage. It's in um, uh, Leviticus 18. The Canaanites, um, in Leviticus 18, God says uh, through Moses, don't be like the Canaanites when you get there. Um, because they're into incest. Um, they're into child sacrifice. They are deeply evil people. If we, if we saw them, we, we would know. They're, they're not just getting on with their lives in all innocence. They are, they are an evil people. And God has given them ages to repent. You can go back to um, Genesis 15. Um, and God says to Abraham when he promises him the land, this is before, if you think about it, this is Abraham, this is before they've gone into Egypt, before they come out. Um, God says to Abraham, you'll be 400 years, you'll be in Egypt. 
He says, but in the fourth generation, I will bring you out, and then you will get the land. And only then, why? Because only then will the sin of the Canaanites have reached its full measure. They have four generations. I don't, I'm not sure how you tie up the 400 years and the four generations. But these people have had generations to repent. And only at this time has their sin reached its full measure, by which I guess it means that there is no one righteous single person left. He has given them generations at the very least, to repent, and they have not repented. And Israel, they're not conquering to, uh, to, to gain financially. Certainly, later on, they are allowed to keep some of the things. But certainly in this initial seminal battle, um, all that is precious is, goes, into the Lord's, goes into the Lord's treasuries. If they keep some of the stuff, then they endorse the lifestyle that the people led when they were gaining that stuff. Do you see what I mean? If they keep the treasures of Canaan, then they endorse the lifestyle. If they let the people live, they endorse the lifestyle of of Canaan, and the Lord will not have it. These are people, they've had their chance. The Lord knows that they're not righteous, and he must know as well, especially if, he's, if young and old are killed, he must know as well that they are not going to be righteous, that they are not going to change their mind later on down the line. I think one of the strong arguments I would make against the death penalty, uh, if we were to enact it as a country, as a government, is that we cut off the possibility of people changing their mind or trusting the Lord later on down the line. But because this is a specific command of the Lord, he must know all contingencies, that they're not going to do that. Still hard to take, isn't it? So as we hold out the gospel, as you go and tell people about Jesus, people will devote themselves, uh, people will end up in one kind of devotion or another. Either the devotion of a personal relationship or the devotion of eternal destruction before the Lord. You already know this, but we just don't like to think about it. So when, uh, when Jesus says to, to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his own son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, he goes on to say, God didn't send his, world, uh, his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But then he goes on to say, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. So as you hold the gospel out, it goes one of two ways. Belief, devotion to the Lord, unbelief, a different kind of devotion to the Lord. There are only two ways. I'm just going to pass on this. So to come back to where we were, stick to the Lord's foolish strategy. And the Lord's foolish strategy is to tell the story of Christ crucified, two people, in words, backed by prayer and unity and, and a holy life, a credible life, okay? And I just want to ask you the question, how, how can we get the good news of Jesus in front of more people? Let's be really practical about this. Um, I want you to pray about this and I want you to come back to church meeting with it. So, so far, and since the time we've been here, we've been here seven years, and seven years sounds like a season, doesn't it? And the, um, We've done friendship evangelism. 
In other words, we've sent people out to tell their friends about, uh, about Christ. And the people who do that should pray. They should pray for opportunities to share the gospel, for eyes to see them, courage to take them, wisdom to know what to say. That's where we've been um, up till now. I, I wonder whether we should do more. There's this story, isn't there, that Jesus tells in Luke 14 about a man who prepares a banquet. Uh, he invites people, says, come on, it's all ready. They begin to make excuses. I bought a field, I just need to go and see. In other words, I've got a new car, just need to try it out. Just bought five yoke of oxen, I'm just going to try them out. Someone else says, I've just got married, sorry, can't come. Servant comes back to his master. And the owner of the house became angry. Said, go quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. Sir, the servant said, we've done that. Done that in the still room. And then the master said, go in the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. Tell you not one of those who are invited will get a taste of my banquet. See, that's about Israel. Uh, Israelites at the time of Jesus, they've heard the good news, they're not coming. You see, I think there's a lot of people who've been told they're not coming. I, 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 just, I throw this out as a query. White middle-class people, we're telling them, oh, Jesus, at least I trust you on, they're not coming. Do we need to get into the margins? Do we need to go, are, are, the, are we heading, you know, are we banging our heads with the gospel against the people who are not listening? It's not entirely true, and I wouldn't want us to stop, and I wouldn't want you to stop doing friendship evangelism, but I wonder whether we need to get into the margins, and I don't know what that means. So I'm going to invite you to pray about that. Bring that to church meeting. Something to be thought through. That's, that's the battle, the external battle, the offensive battle. Do we need to be more offensive? I don't know, some of you are pretty offensive anyway. Just checking with you awake. This is Tim. But do we need to be more offensive? Do we need to do some programmed evangelism? You tell me. But there is this other part of the battle, which is um, this defensive part of the battle. Have we gone out to war and come home with treasures that we shouldn't have brought into our houses? See what I mean? And actually, Ephesians 6, which is that passage about being strong in the Lord and in his mighty power and putting on the full armor of God... Um, It says, so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So I think at least part of what this passage is saying, I think we get this passage in all kinds of wrong. Um, It's uh, Ephesians 6, so I haven't uh, give you a page number if you want to look it up. Um, Page 1177. Verse 10 onwards. But I think what this passage is saying is that, the, it, is that there is a host of evil which is trying to undermine you. Because the weapons we're given are, are weapons of primarily defensive weapons. They're the weapons of speaking the truth, belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, just being practically good in what we do, uh, ready with the gospel, feet fitted with the readiness of the gospel, the shield of faith, which extinguishes arrows, helmet of salvation, sword of the spirit, which is, which is the word of God. There are powers of Satan, and, and what Satan wants to do is to get at you and to make you compromise. 
I think that's what that passage says. I think that's the main thrust, is that the powers of darkness are, are, are trying to tempt you through their actions in the world around you to get you to, to compromise. And I just wonder, you know, we think about this battle of the world and the flesh and the devil. We're kind of waiting. I wonder whether we're kind of waiting for this horned figure to appear so we can go, aha, my shield of faith, you, you, you know, or, or some such, where actually he's been for years drip-feeding his, his values into, into your life by the world around you. And I suspect that that's true. So while you've been waiting for a demonic apparition, so you can go, aha, you know, uh, helmet, you know, uh, what's actually happening is that you've taken your truth standards from the world, from your work colleagues. And it's slipped into your house. And you tell a white lie to your husband, you know, to, to have just to, to make life more comfortable. Or we've slipped into the world standards of goodness from your mates around you. Your mates are going, it's just uncool to try that hard. To be good. It's just uncool uh, to be good. Wicked means good. You know, it's just cool to be a bit. Cool is naughty. Or you've kind of picked up the world's attitude to, to, to religion, you know, I don't know, from the TV or... Don't take it too seriously. It's all the same. Or has kind of the world standard purity kind of slipped into, into your house? Faithfulness, is, faithfulness to your husband and wife, so old hat. You see, you're, well, maybe you are waiting for the flaming arrows to, to come over the parapet, glowing, and you didn't realise it was like that picture in your morning paper that came through and just caused you to kind of some inappropriate thoughts. Or actually, uh, it was what somebody said down the pub and you said, yeah, actually, I, I, I think I'll, I, I don't really want to stand out for Christ. And you know you were called to kind of um, to use the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And you know what? Have you been waiting for the horned figure to kind of pop up from the bottom of your bed before you start remembering and learning scripture? Have you been looking for something grand and something small has slipped in under the door? You need truth. Speak the truth at all times. You need be ready with the gospel at all times. You need to, to be practically working on your righteousness under the grace of Christ. You need to be confident in the gospel. You need to have the scripture at hand. You need these defensive weapons. Pick them up. And if one of the temptations is, is through money, there's a very simple answer to that. Is in, the, in the Old Testament, you devoted things to the Lord by giving first fruits. Or giving first fruits. If your temptation is with material things, then devote it to the Lord. Kill it off. Kill that temptation and put some stuff instead in the Lord's treasuries.
So it's time to fight. It really is, isn't it? It's time to fight. People face one kind of devotion or the other. It's time to fight. Father God, we need to fight. Lord, forgive us if we've been sitting around on the sidelines. Forgive us if we've been sitting down in the middle of the battlefield. Forgive us for for, for waiting to see Satan leap across the threshold of the church before we're ready with our defensive weapons. Help us step up to the mark in Jesus' name. Amen.